0: That's heritageradio.network.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation. Today we're broadcasting live from Charleston Wine & Food. We want to thank Ben's friends for making our coverage today possible. This afternoon we're focusing on conversations on building a sustainable lifestyle and finding balance in the hospitality industry. Big thanks to Charleston Wine & Food Festival for having HRN down here for the fifth year in a row. My guest today is Harry Root. Harry owns a business called Grassroots Wine right down here in uh, the Charleston area, and he has other offices. Um, Harry, you've been in the business a couple of decades already, right?
2: Uh, almost, yeah, pretty much two decades. Yeah, even though you look young.
1: Um, you started grassroots in the early 2000s. Um, good wine, and both of us love good wine. Great wine. doesn't Great wine. It doesn't get to the consumer in a market like this without guys like you. And maybe now it's taken a little for granted but talk to me a little about the business, the distribution, how you got started, you know, why you did this. You know, I'm assuming because it was a lack of great wine. or
2: Sure, I mean, well, the the original way we got into the business was we opened up a, what we thought was going to be a liquor barn in Chattanooga. And as it turns out, there was a, for one thing, it's a lot more fun to sell wine than liquor in my opinion, Um, but also there was a very big, uh, you know, literal thirst for great wine in in that city that really hadn't been exposed to it before. So, we were very successful in our store, made great friends, realized how much consumers really wanted to learn more about what they were drinking and were, and were into the sense of place that uh, really excited us right from the very beginning. And uh, we eventually sold that store and started a distribution company called Grassroots, first in Alabama in 2003 and then a year later in South Carolina in 2004. Kind of following the model we did with the store of, of taking risks, of, of trying to work as directly as we could with, uh, with producers, especially from Europe and bringing new interesting wines to the market that weren't there before.
1: So what happens? Do you literally go to Europe and see if you can represent people or are those people represented through importers in New York and I don't know if it's the right word but you sub-distribute or import
2: yeah, I mean, both? That's, that's a fine way to put it. I, I am definitely a middleman in a lot of ways. Um, right at the beginning it was mostly importers and that was that was almost strictly the way business was done and we were very lucky to come around when we did and working in two states that were kind of flying under the radar as far as uh, exposure but we were also very very adventurous very very early so um we worked with neil rosenthal and terry these but those Scurna are like the ogs and of the curated gangsters. wines
1: and you know, natural and all
2: that stuff. Exactly, and they weren't represented in those in our two markets. And we were, you know, especially in Charleston, we were very lucky to be here before anybody really knew what this town would become. And well, that,
1: that, that was sort of my next question. Two thousand three, four, five, when you were getting up and running, it's nothing like what's going on today, right? Oh, not at but all. But there was some interest and in, and in, you know, growth in restaurants then too.
2: Very much so, and the and the the food was changing. Um, Fig, for example, opened up the same year that we did here in Charleston, and, and we obviously we have a great relationship with uh, with with that restaurant group, um, in particular. And but generally speaking, any kind of young entrepreneurs that in Charleston had the opportunity between the uh, between the affordability at the time of right. of space and the access to lots of tourists that were already coming here anyway, and then the just the burgeoning food scene. It made sense to tie wine into that in a, in a new way. Um, and so, you know, what we were doing was, was somewhat risky well, bringing let, wines from Austria. And let's
1: talk about that. that sort of thing. Because, um, two things, or two questions. In a sense, do you think you were breaking some ground then? Like when you looked left and right, there were not a lot of guys going to Austria or whatever. And then, you know, your company has a certain philosophy or. It's important to you when you go after wines or wineries or winemakers that they kind of fit in a certain box.
2: Absolutely. Talk
1: to me about, you know, both of those things.
2: Well, so, um, like I say, in a lot of of ways we were in the right place at the right time. And and when we did open up, there was, that piece of the wine world didn't really exist at all, anywhere, really. I mean, it was barely happening in New York. Starting to grow. And we were really lucky to make friends with the right people at the right time, so you know, our peers in New York City were doing the same things that we were doing in South Carolina, almost exactly at the same time. Um, uh, they were able to be a little bit more successful faster, just because they're bigger and had a bigger audience and, and a more progressive audience. Right. But, but restaurants change quickly. I mean, for one thing, it's 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 a better experience for for their consumers, for sure. And um, and then the other thing is, it's another way. Really, to differentiate yourself and create profit centers um, by finding wines that, that don't exist elsewhere, and you can, you know, you become it's becoming where you're not competing on price for the Pinot Grigio placement. Right. Instead, you're offering the customer something they've never had before, and um, and and differentiating yourself, but also being able to to, and to make. And you were money starting to
1: get into when you were talking about, you know, regions and makers. There's a certain type of wine and philosophy, you know, of the type of portfolio of wines that you want to bring in just quick me t- quickly tell me sure you know i mean it's i mean i know it i want you to well know. It, well
2: it's evolved in real time you know honestly as as we've been open I've, t- I've i've had overt conversations with people about this from the beginning even before we started talking about natural wine we were trying to figure out what is it about these wines that we like so much what, what do we even call them, and how do we even describe them? And, and they would change year from year. It might be, oh, it's got to be hand harvested. But then the next year, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> organic. <laughs> you know, or whatever. you know, what Biodynamic. about the sulfur, or what about the agriculture, right. and and you know, all those things are important. That was evolving, right? Uh, well, absolutely, and it still is. And there's not, you know, there's not necessarily one right way to to find interesting wines that people love, um, and and that kind of fit the philosophy. So the philosophy does have to be flexible. I grew up, um, I, I, when my parents divorced when I was 10 years old, my mom moved from Tampa, Florida, to a hippie commune in Tennessee. Wow. And that kind of guided my, uh, the, way, the way that I select wines and the way that I find people that I want to work with. Because I grew up, you know, in the 19, late 1970s, going to farmer's market, drinking raw milk, um, you know, playing in soybean silos and that sort of thing.
1: <laughs> at that point, did you not know any better? Like there was like pasteurized milk in the
2: supermarket or you kind of knew both worlds? Well, I knew or that I, was the world you knew? I knew when I went to go visit my father who lived in Tampa and kind of lived okay, normal, so, industrial. So you, you had both sides, right. And I didn't even really think about it too right. much at the time except for I sure do like that milk in Tennessee better than I like the milk in in, right. in, in, in Florida. Not yet.
0: <laughs>
2: All right, so
1: that's grassroots you're on the business side of uh the wine business um and i can't think of a better person and one of the reasons you know i asked you to come on is today we're talking about issues wellness sobriety and everything and there's a big issue looming in hospitality the wine world we could look at it from the lens of the wine world but the wine world touches everything hospitality restaurants retailers workers you know, farmers, everything. Um, you've been to Washington. You've actually camped out a little down there. I did. Speaking on behalf of fighting the tariffs. Um, so we need to set this up a little. Um, there was a, a, a big uproar about Trump adding a 100% tariff, but I think people forget that previous to that, he already slapped 25 on that were Sure. So that's the setup. Now help me navigate through where things are. You know what was happening when you're there and the sure. impacts. That I'm that's tell, our discussion. You know till sure. I'm going to tell you the long story as
2: fast as I can. Okay, <laughs> um, Let but me this tell you all, the long story long. This uh, this all boils down to um, to a uh, trade dispute that's been around for almost two decades, and it's a Airbus Boeing trade dispute um, that. Is triggered and and um, and governed by the World Trade Organization in a in a in a, in a, uh, a a thing called a 301 dispute, and it hasn't been used since the late 1970s. So the the crazy thing is like nobody really understands exactly the rules of how we're dealing with dealing with this tariff issue, but it was uh, originally heard by the United States Trade Representative, who ultimately makes all tariff decisions for uh, for the U.S. Um, he and the president. Um, they originally heard this in May and August, um, and and basically what happened is the WTO gave the United States they found in our favor because the Airbus is receiving illegal subsidies from the European government, or unauthorized subsidies from the European government. And that pissed the U.S. off. Well, it's been it's made us mad for 20 years. A while, right. and it's made Boeing mad because right. they've lost Protecting you know, Boeing they've lost growth and job pr- job opportunities yeah. and that sort of thing. So, um, depending on how you look at it, you know from what lens you look at it, but regardless. Um, the USTR was given the authority by the WTO to impose tariffs on a variety of products and those products included wine and in May and August of this summer they had hearings to decide whether the the list of things that were on the uh, proposed tariff list were uh, were authorized and efficient things to tariff and unfortunately the wine industry was not um, wasn't really paying too much attention I mean we're all And certainly in my realm where we're small and independent and uh we don't have people working on Capitol Hill and maybe we don't even really um pay attention a whole lot to that sort of that sort of politics but again no big lobby for this it's also a a, again like an action that hasn't been used since the 70s so nobody was really sure about how what this meant and how it would work regardless um the tariffs were approved because they weren't really protested tariffs on wine were approved because they weren't really protested well are argued well why they shouldn't be at the uh, in the summer hearings. And in October, yes, the uh, the U.S. trade representatives began imposing 25% tariffs on four countries from the EU, the four countries that are primarily responsible for those subsidies that the Airbus is hearing. But what really got our attention, and, and I can tell you this, when the 25% tariffs came into place, I, like most people, um, thought that... Uh, this is uh, this is an unfortunate piece of of this uh, this policy of this trade policy, but it's also, you know, we're going to do our part and realizing very quickly that you know the U.S. is is exercising their right because they think that they're right, and regardless what you think of the administration. This is something that's extended from Democrats to Republicans, and nobody wants Boeing, our American company, you to, support be, to be taking advantage issue, of by, right? by this. So. I felt like I felt like like many that you know this is our patriotic duty to some extent, and it seemed on the surface apparent that um, there's a countersuit between Airbus and Boeing and, and Boeing and Airbus, and they're going to crash together sometime this spring, and the tariffs would go away. But um, in December, um, the uh, the USTR announced that they were going to re-review this tariff package and potentially tariff wine at a hundred percent from wine from every single country in the EU, which once that happened, um, everyone in the wine world sat forward and started paying attention and realized that 25% tariffs are terrible, and it's not the greatest thing in the world to tariff for a variety of reasons. But 100% tariffs is a uh, hospitality tax; it's a restaurant tax; it is uh, the kind of prohibitive um, uh, action that would that would really destroy an industry that's that's very valuable to the U.S. Right, very widespread. You know, at every level. I mean, not just not just money, but pleasure. You know, it's uh. So that was a that month bro- or two ago. That was December. Th- I think it was thirteenth oh. when they announced the uh, when they announced this potential hundred percent terror. And you
1: made you know? a bunch of trips down to Washington with a pretty good list of diverse people, and the-
2: they finally stepped up, right? We did. So um, December thirteenth happened, and and in Charleston, I woke up and I was like, well, I, I always thought that some, like many people, that the big guys would take care of us here. Like somebody's watching this, but. Um, but when it. you
1: say big guy, like who were you uh, thinking the, of?
2: The the big Southerns and the giant wine companies, and or, or whatever. Like and they all would those flex, flex and, and did and, did any of that happen? Well, they they definitely were working hard on it. Um, but like I said, it's it was a foreign, it's a it, it's not a regular sort of uh, sort of issue procedure or that's, or proceed, that's, right. that's, that's that's handled this way. So um, you know, I think in hindsight, uh, none of us handled it right because you know, people like myself didn't even pay attention to what was going on in the spring and the summer, um, let alone do anything about it. And we didn't really do anything about it until after the 25 cent tariffs had been in place for almost two months and they announced that they were going to potentially make them a hundred um, percent. And at that once point, once you
1: were backed against the wall, you fought oh back a little. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, when I, I, I import about 60% of our business comes from European countries. So from a personal standpoint, it was absolutely, you know, it's a do or die thing if, if, if 60% of my supply chain is prohibitively tariffed and I can't, makes those wines unsellable, I'm obviously not gonna stay in business very long. Um, but then, thinking about what this means for my friends and our customers that, that we partner well, let, with. I
1: wanna to talk to you about that, but sure. answer these couple of questions first. Sure. So, obviously when you and others went down and spoke, there was an impact where the decision was delayed, that's where we're at till December or,
2: Did I say that right? Kind of the um, the way the procedure works, which I mean, it it took a a bevy of lawyers, even House um, like committee lawyers from the trade subcommittee, spent a day and a half researching this because again, like nobody's ever used it, and they got to go through the rigmarole of figuring out what the uh, what the exact procedures are. But when they implemented the tariffs in October, there was a mandatory 120 day review. So, even though it looked like on December 13th, and coincidentally, December 13th was the Monday after the NATO conference where um, Trump and Macron and Boris Johnson and those guys were, quote-unquote, making fun of Trump and the Saturday right, Night right, Live right. skit. And right, right, so right. They it were came, standing around. So, when money. it hit that Monday, it looked like it was reactionary politics, but the reality was it was something that was that was uh, a procedure that they had to follow. So, right, when, so when, you implement, when they implemented the October tariffs, they had to review it in 120 days, which puts it... Um, in the middle of February, so and and then the procedure is they have to announce sixty days before they review something. They have to have a thirty day comment period, and then they have to sit on it for thirty days, and then they make the decision after that.
1: So when is it a time for you to worry? I mean, when does it resurface? Well, so or, or the time comes and a decision has to be made whether right. to impose or. So when we, is that?
2: So we jumped in obviously, and between December thirtieth and February. Or December, I'm sorry, December fifteenth and February fifteenth, we worked as best as we could to figure out ways to try to try to stop the hundred percent from happening. And now that, and and when February came, they announced that uh, that they were going to keep the tariffs remain what they originally did, the twenty five percent on the limited countries, which is not a victory by any stretch. But I can guarantee you from my experience and the people that I talked to, that was never the intent. The intent was to maximize the pressure. Um, for the spring, for this next six-month cycle, and really try to get the the Airbus case solved. And right. it would have been at the expense of the wine industry, in a in a very, very devastating wine and hospitality industry in a devastating way. Um, but since they made the decision on the fifteenth, now instead of one hundred and twenty days, it's one hundred and eighty days. So they'll review this now in perpetuity until they quit acting on this particular dispute every 180 days so now we're looking so does, at the middle of august
1: does that make it somewhat fluid like when that day comes it may well this time or, well
2: for one thing this time we're going to be prepared which we right. weren't before different um, and we certainly are way better organized and we know how this works but they'll open up comments in the middle of june they'll close comments in the middle of july and then they'll make the decision in the middle of Is august it
1: necessary for you guys to be back there for then or it's not that type of
2: absolutely okay and um uh, I mean the big thing that we're trying to do and, and it, it totally makes sense wine is not an effective tariff item I and mean, it never should have been put on the on the, on the the list to begin with. Nobody wants to be tariff no industry does. We don't want to see cheese tariff, we don't want to see olive oil tariff Is but that wine- the champagne argument?
1: If they tariff champagne you can't replace sh- a sparkling wine is not champagne because well, it's
2: so specific? Well there's two things that the USTR asked for when they ask for comments on tariff items. The first thing is will it be effective against the target country? Will it Will it create a, a pressure on them to acquiesce to whatever the dispute is? And in the case of wine, by and large, the answer is no. We're, we are a replaceable market. It's European wine, and especially European fine wine, is a finite product. They make as much as they can. They sell as much as they can for a great profit. And they could sell it to Asia, they could sell it to China, they could sell it to Brazil that just, uh, just eliminated tariffs on European wine for the first time in 30 years. Really? Um, there's all kinds of markets that can replace the United States, and in fact, the month after the 25% tariffs went in place, uh, French and France, which is the the biggest country, obviously the exporter there and the one that was targeted the most, their exports grew. Then the following month, even though their exports to the United States dropped 50%, their overall exports grew. Wow. Chinese ex, Im, export or imports of French wine grew by 35%, and then the rest of Asia and other countries and in, in Europe and South America took up the slack. So in that. You know, for that first piece of criteria, is it effective? You can look at the macro, um, the macroeconomics of it, and the answer right. is no. We're replaceable as a trade partner, and it can happen very, very quickly, and it did, and and is happening very, very quickly. Um, the second criteria that the USTR asks about is, does it do disproportionate harm to an, to American businesses? And by virtue of the three-tier system that's mandated by the con- you know, the very constitution of the United States. So just States, quickly. Yeah.
1: Explain the three-tier system. You threw that out so the in, in the wine and liquor world. There's a way wine gets from the producer to the consumer, and that's a three-tier t- system.
2: Right. So the three tiers for imported wines are: it has to go through an importer that has a federal import license. That importer has to sell it to a distributor like me that has a state distribution license, and then I have to sell it to a retailer or a, or a restaurant, restaurant who, consequently, sells it to the consumer. So you can argue it's a four-tier system. And everybody's and, and, taking a little piece. Well, everybody, you know, I mean, everybody does their part and and runs a run, right. runs an important piece of the, right. of, the of the industry. Um, It's also important to note that every level is taxed. So you get federal tax revenue, you get state tax revenue, and then you usually get at the restaurant or retail level, you get more local tax revenue. That's the consumer Um, sort of getting screwed. At the end of the day, well, I mean, you know, I think that... that That's the cost of the business. It's the cost of the business. And if it was, you know, sure, there would be some efficiencies if it was not regulated like that. But by and large, like, I stay pretty busy, and I have to try pretty hard to sell wine, even though I am occupying a space that that is that, created by this right. by this system right this it would it would exist anyway it would just maybe it would it would be a little bit more efficient perhaps and um and it wouldn't be as much of a tax revenue generator as it was before but the point is is this is that for every one european winemaker that you that you harm in the tariff action you harm by by law three american businesses the three-tier and, system? But, so the three-tier system. So you're harming the importer, you're harming the the distributor, you're harming the retailer, and at the end of the day, you're harming the consumer as well. When you buy, for every dollar of, of European wine or French wine, we'll use that as an example, for every dollar of French wine you sell, generally speaking, about seventy-five uh, percent of that is American companies either profit or tax collection. That's a big chunk of it. It's crazy. So you're you're you know, you're harming it. you're 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 harming the french by a quarter but you're harming america by 75 cents.
1: So spread out the question a little for me. So the question was, you know, explain the effects the tariffs are going to have. So w- one of the major ways, which is really the business of how wine gets here, is the three-tier system. It's going to affect those three players. Right. That goes all the way down to your local retailer and your restaurant. Sure. But let's let's go macro on that because every one of those industries has a crap load of people. Sure. A retailer has store people, a restaurant has, you know, a ton
2: of people. Sure. So how deep do you feel, you know, the effects are? Well, I mean, the 100 nobody has no industry has a plan sitting or lying around for what happens if, if our if our cost of goods double overnight, which essentially right. is essentially what we're looking at. You know, it's every, you know file it, B. it's, right it's going to be devastating, but I mean, in in the case of wine, it's going uh, to—I mean, it it does make those products prohibitive. I mean, we already—you know—consumers already spend a lot of money um, on the things that they drink and enjoy, um, and they certainly would find other ways to to get that enjoyment. But no one's going to pay twenty-five dollars for a cheap bottle of Pinot Grigio, nor you know the people that are now paying three thousand dollars for for a bottle of DRC. Aren't just automatically going to pay six thousand dollars because that's no. what it costs. Right. Um, that becomes prohibitive, and so those wines, they figure out a way to get those wines and move them elsewhere. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, jobs along the way, every way, um, and two, just a, a a real loss of culture and enjoyment in the United States because, again, these things, it's not like Put a they, big damper not on. Like it. they just go up a little bit in price, they disappear from right. from the industry, and once the new trade routes are built to the other countries that these these products would go to they don't just automatically come back to the United States. It's not like right. six months later.
1: You're going to lose like, a percentage, hey, hey. Of, right. There's you know. no guarantee coming back. Right. When uh, a bunch of you were in Washington, I mean, you're part of that three-tier system. You're fighting for your life and all that. Were people good at articulating the the effects beyond just your business? I mean, you could sit right. there and say, listen, I'm a local business, save that. I have a lot of people working for me, save that. Sure. But your product touches, you know, the restaurants, the retailers, all we're, we're, right. Were people well, I, I, I was articulating the depth
2: of it? I was really good at it. <laughs>
1: um, you were okay, but, but no. There, but, so that, I'm going to read between the lines. Not everybody was, but I guess some others were too. Well,
2: you know, there was um, there. There certainly were a lot of people that were in DC talking the talk um, and, and doing the things. It. it we started uh, here in Charleston on on December 13th scratching our head wondering what we could do. The, the government gave us the directive that we could comment to the USTR via their website, but that was really the only official thing that we could do to make our voices heard. So we started a movement where we um, solicited our congressmen to them, for them to write the USTR, figuring that would give it more oomph, but also, also give us something to energize a, a movement to do something. So our congressman here, Joe Cunningham, was instrumental in helping develop that, that idea Um, but immediately it was a bipartisan, somebody
1: in politics actually didn't frustrate
2: you. They kind of helped you. It's lots of people did. I mean, honestly, that was the most surprising thing about the whole experience was how really everybody and people on both sides of the aisle were recognized that, that. That hurting hospitality, hurting tourism. I think that issue is hard, jobs, uh, you know, and, and especially in recognized. a state like South Carolina, where tourism is our number two industry, right. um, and certainly in Charleston, when you look at you look at this city and what it means to this city, um, you start uh, you start running the dollars and cents and. Those
1: people have to advocate for you the so, way they're supposed to. So
2: we were able to get support from both sides of the aisle very very quickly. Um, but it's again, it wasn't. It's not a legislative issue at this point. It's it's down this path through the administration and through the USDR, and so. The trick became how do we, how do we influence the USTR given the tools that we have, right. and um, ultimately that the, the, will be figured out is who are the, who are the congressmen, who are the senators with the most access to the USDR, who has people that, that um, it that are now working on their staff that came Play out of the smart. USTR office that could make that phone call directly to them and make the arguments that we need that we wanted to quickly and effectively, and uh, um, we were very fortunate. To, to develop relationships quickly and in South Carolina in particular have Congressman Tim Scott, Congressman Lindsey Graham, people that, that have, have some very sway. favorable um, right. relationships with the administration um, that were also able to get their the message to the USTR. So at the right. end of the day, the argument I'm pretty sure came down to not so much should we raise the tariffs on wine, but how can we maybe get wine off this tariff package eventually? And right. That's gonna be our that's gonna be our goal for the next review is hopefully wine will come off because of the two things that I mentioned, it's ineffective and it does undue harm to American business. And sadly, that's not the case with every industry, Um, but for wine and spirits, that's the case.
1: Um, Harry, we have to wrap up. What I wanna do is uh, you and I will stay in touch and when things come to the next important time, um, I wanna communicate with you one way or another, call in, we'll tape something, you know, correspondence and all that. Um, and you'll give me an update. Um, I will
2: absolutely. And um, you know, this next time again, like I said, we're going to be better organized. We're gonna, we're gonna well, get it more. Well, it sounds like
1: you got organized. Right. You're more aware. And next, like next time, we're not getting caught with our shorts. Well, this set. time we
2: kind of we know what to do too, and we know what's effective. But we're gonna we're gonna activate more restaurants. That's the that's the biggest next step. I mean, obviously, importers and retailers for them, it's just it's a one to one ratio. But uh, for restaurants and hospitality, it's a it's a tiny bit more of a leap. But you know the number one group of salespeople, wine salespeople in the United States, are servers. They rely on the True. sales of of beverage for about forty percent of their of their commission. Their, what we call tips. Tons and, of them um, out there. And this this tax, this this tariff, is going to be prohibitively tariff about half of that. So when you start thinking about threatening twenty to ten to twenty percent of the income of every server at every fine dining restaurant in the United States, um, it's it's impactful um, in in a, in a lot of ways, including a humanitarian way, but. We started an organization called the U.S. Wine Trade Alliance. You can find it at uswinetradealliance.org, where you can sign up and be a member. And that will—it doesn't really—it doesn't cost anything. Um, we will take support. Give me the uh, the handle again. U.S. Sure, it's uswinetradealliance.org. Okay. And um, so if you, if, sign, you buy- if you sign up as a membership, you'll um, you'll get updates via email. We also have a Facebook page, um, group page, uswinetradealliance.org. If you're an industry professional. You we'll answer, we'll post you,
1: it on our site, too. You can
2: answer like a few simple questions and get into the private group. And on it's only private just to keep us from getting hammered the, by, uh, by consumers and right. people that don't want to focus solely on, uh, on tariffs, because that's really all we're focused on. All right.
1: On our podcast page, you know, I'll put that link up, too. Um, we got to wrap up. Uh, I want to thank you for coming in and talking about an issue that, believe it or not, affects more people than they know. Absolutely. You know, we know the people in the industry are affected, but the consumer, too. One day they're going to wake up and go, you know, what the, you know, why is this wine? You know, they're so removed from the issue. So that's why I'll check back with you. My hope
2: is they they never will notice.
1: Well, yeah, (laughs) that 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 goes that way. Um, I guess before we wrap up, congratulations in order. Didn't, from the festival you received... I did uh, 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 the the Outstanding Beverage
2: Professional Award for this year, which is... uh, Have you ever won it before? Never, no, yeah, I never won it before.
1: And well, congrats on that. Not a surprise! All right, thanks for coming by. Uh, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation. I want to thank Harry Root from Grassroots um, for sitting down and helping us uh, decipher and navigate the tariff issue. Thanks again, Ben's friends, for making today's coverage possible. Stay tuned for more Charleston wine and food. This program is powered by Simplecast.